Welcome to the Ex-Millennial Man Podcast, podcast for SeedSane.com. I am your host, Artie Kulik, and I am the only constant left in this entire universe, world, and podcast because no tie, no fired, but no tie. He's out uh, running around an island that smells like horse poop between the upper and lower peninsula of Michigan. So I brought back in uh, returning champion, back-to-back podcast host, greatest other host on this side of the Mississippi, and that's uh, Tina. How are you today, Tina? I'm good. Two weeks in a row. I know. That's, it's, uh, it's amazing. There's a special reason. Obviously, I had you back, or I had you last week for the uh, talking about Wimbledon. Wimbledon, yep. So, but I want, there was something else that came up, and I wanted to talk to you about it because I think it's important. We're going to talk about Jane Austen film adapt, film slash television adaptations. And what's interesting about this is you and I just had a discussion like, I know who Jane Austen is. I've read these books, but I think of all the movies we're going to talk about, I have maybe seen one and a half. I think you've seen, I know that you've seen two. Well, we will find out as we take this journey together. Okay. But the one that I haven't seen, you and I planned on seeing it. And for some odd reason, I my, my work schedule had to go into the evening each night. So I missed it. I don't know if you finished it. But Netflix has a new adaptation of the Austin novel Persuasion. Now, before we get into it, for the people out there going like, you know, Jane Austen, is she related to Steve Austen, the bionic man? or the Yes. So who is, Jane, yeah, who is Jane Austen? Jane Austen was a novelist who was writing in the Regency period, which is the early 1800s. Yeah, that, you're doing like, you know, graduate level English when you say <laughs> things like the Regency period. A lot of people mistakenly say she's Victorian. She is not Victorian. She predates Dickens and his ilk by several decades. Right around 1800, 1810. Yeah. I think Persuasion was her last novel. I think it was published in 1815, if I'm not mistaken. There was one that was published after she died. Was that Persuasion? I don't know if it was published after she okay. died. All right, or maybe there was I one mean, there was, there was a novel called Sanditon, which is not considered... One, she has six finished novels, and mm-hmm. Sanditon is considered an unfinished novel. Okay, okay. Maybe so it's not like the, what's the Dickens one? The Mystery of Edwin Drood or something like that was when he was writing when he died. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, she might have been writing Sanditon when she yeah. died. And most people consider there to be six completed novels. And, and Persuasion bas- is the last one. Yeah. And basically, for me, and maybe it's because of the Missouri in me, and maybe it's because of the man in me, but... Mark Twain was like, he, he famously wasn't a big fan of Jane Austen. Just basic misogynist, <laughs> bull, bull pucky. Because men tend to think that they write about important things, and women don't write about important things. And I can't go back. I, and, I think the same is true in rock and roll. The same is true mm-hmm. in films. But somebody Thus has it ever been so. Yes. And somebody, like I said, I've read Austen novels, but... I didn't read them until I was in college, whereas I've read plenty of Mark Twain, plenty of Hemingway, plenty of... I was just complaining about how there was no Austin on my high school reading list, and yet I had to read Saul Bellow, who is a raging misogynist. I had to read Invisible Man, which I understand is an important novel. Well, I believe... You know, I read Watership Down, so apparently my high school curriculum thought that the bunnies were more important than Jane Austen. And I say this as a person that really likes Watership Down. I think it's a great book. Well, I think I'm trying to think of the only major female author that I would have read in high school. I think I read uh, Silas Marner, which is George Eliot, who is a woman. Yes, yes. uh, I thought I'd throw that out there. 
I, the only one I can think of is probably Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. See, I never read who you know, I saw this meme going around, but a lot of people think Frankenstein invented the science fiction genre, that writing genre mm-hmm. by a woman. And the science fiction television genre, a lot of people think started with Star Trek, Lucille Ball. She didn't write it or any of that stuff, but that show doesn't exist without Lucille Ball. So you guys need to go look that up. But anyways, with Austin, though, I would part of my argument, part of doing this is I think there's been a renaissance. I don't remember my parents ever talking about Jane Austen in the second half when we talk about good adaptations. Now, 1995 was the year of peak Jane Austen when I was a freshman in college. There's two things we're going to talk about in the second half because this first half I want to Yeah, I want to talk about some misfires and that's why I'm going to start with the Netflix movie Persuasion. Now, I'm going to tell you what I know about it outside of the plot. Okay. I know that is it Dakota Johnson? Yeah. Okay, it's Don Johnson and um Oh, I Melanie can't think Griffith. Of, yeah, Melly Griffith is their daughter. She's been in a few things, Fifty Shades of Grey stuff. Her star's rising, so to say. And she gets this big, this big Austin adaptation. It seems like people have been fairly lukewarm on it, though. And I don't know about the spirit. Lukewarm? <laughs> people have been downright chilly. No, there's... I, oh I will say, I don't hate this movie as much as some people do. I think it's misguided and pointless but i don't hate it so yeah lukewarm maybe is the wrong way to say it it's got 31 percent on rotten tomatoes now and, and it's not a good movie like i said i i don't hate it quite as much as some of the vitriol has been directed at it but it, it's it's not a good movie well from my understanding and again this is what i know i'll let you go more into it is it, it's trying to ape bridgerton and fleabag i think although i haven't watched yeah fleabag. i mean the, what i heard somebody say is you can just imagine uh, John Krasinski being Jim Halpert and playing the same role that uh, that Dakota <laughs> Johnson plays. It's mm-hmm. very breaking the fourth wall type stuff, things like that. And from my understanding, though, it's it's uh, period accurate. The story, from my understanding, is um, not too far off. But yeah, I mean, most adaptations take some liberties, which so, is fine. So you said you didn't hate it, but you understand why people don't care. What What is it about this latest version of Persuasion? So first of all, let me say that it's Dakota Johnson is is fine. I don't think she's bad. I don't think she's great. I think she's fine. Richard E. Grant, he will always be known to me as employee of the year Bob Cratchit in my favorite version oh, of A yeah. Christmas Carol. I thought he was disposable star wars general guy he in was the rise al- of skywalker he was also that but no he was the greatest bob cratchit ever the cratchitiest drunkest bob cratchit ever in the patrick yes, Stewart was. version of a christmas Carol. he was sir walter elliott and i thought he was great <laughs> he was really good in that role again dakota johnson was fine henry golding was fine as mr elliott yeah there's some heavy hitters in this movie yeah, I mean, the the guy who played Wentworth, I don't know if I'm supposed to know who he is. I didn't know who he was, but he was like, he was a little too moony-eyed, I thought. I don't think of Captain Wentworth as a moony-eyed fellow, but, you know, that's just me and have, you know, my own interpretation of the novel. The problem with this, and we'll get into this later when we talk about some of the good act- adaptations, the best adaptations have either been really faithful, like the 95 Pride and Prejudice BBC miniseries, or they've been incredibly 
different, which would be Clueless or Bridget Jones's Diary, right? And <laughs> I understand what they were trying to do, which is maybe why I don't hate this movie as much as, as I could. But I think there's a fundamental misunderstanding of, of the heroine in this movie. That Anne is, in this movie, Anne is the sort of person who is the object of slapstick comedy, like dumping a gravy boat on her head accidentally, or she's swilling wine straight from the bottle. And she's, she's basically a hot mess, right? The Anne of the novel is not a hot mess. The Anne of the novel is resigned to probably being an old maid. So the story, should we recap the story for yeah, go ahead, the premise go ahead. of the book for those who don't know it? As I said, this was Austen's last novel, and Austen herself was a spinster. In this novel, Anne is in her late 20s, 27-ish, and eight years earlier had fallen in love with a man that people, including a trusted confidant who is still a friend of hers, said he's not a suitable match. He's not rich enough for your stature in life because Anne is a person of, of some rank in that Regency society. And she's never gotten over it. And she's sad about it. Right. That, but she's not a train wreck. And this movie makes her out to be a train wreck, which I think is, I mean, is a choice, I guess, but it's, it's not, if you're not going to be faithful to the story, you at least need to be faithful to who these characters are, don't you? Mm -hmm. And that is not who she is. So you can make that movie and it can be a different movie, but it's not persuasion. And, and the other thing I think that doesn't quite work about persuasion. And again, I, I don't hate the movie because of this, because I, I sort of understand what they were going for. But if you're going to go with the Regency period and the, the, the barouche chaises and the empire waist dresses, you can't, I mean, to have your characters tossing off things like he's a 10 or he's my ex, it just, mm -hmm. it's jarring to the ear. And I'm not saying there's no context in which that could work, but it doesn't work in this movie. So, uh, thumbs down. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, here's the portion of the program I'm going to call the Pride and Prejudice program part of the program. And here's the thing about it. Half of what we talk about is some variation of Pride and Prejudice throughout this. So you're going to get good and bad. And one of them, I think I'm going to... I think that... I think Pride and Prejudice and Emma are probably the two most adapted novels. Well, and you, you're going to... I'm going to warn everybody here. You're going to be coming out with a hot take because we're talking about the ones we don't particularly care for or the ones that maybe are not... Uh, don't really truly find the spirit of of the novels of who these characters are. So first off, there's Hulu has a movie out called Fire Island, and I have not seen it yet. I haven't seen it. It's it's seems better received yeah. than Netflix's persuasion. Right. It's it's a uh it's a, a queer, a gay retelling. I think it's all gay men of Pride and Prejudice. So which is again, you're talking about adapting these for a modern audience. Persuasion, maybe if they just dressed him in regular everyday clothes, it wouldn't be quite as bad. There's also, and we're talking about movie and TV adaptations, but here where we live, there's a uh, former member of the Cincinnati City Council going to prison and his sister, who is a many multiple New York Times bestseller. Not, not, not brother, as... As the local paper called her. Yeah. Yes. yes, Curtis Sittenfeld, she did, she wrote 
a, a version of Pride and Prejudice, I believe. Did it take place in Cincinnati? It did, right down in Hyde Park, okay. because, you know, the Bennetts are people of some consequence. Yes. yes. So, so the, there's some of those, but there's a couple of other ones. Now, one is Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yeah, I've read the book. Right. And here's the thing. The book, I think the the famous, you know, one of the most famous lines of literature is... The opening uh, line from yeah, Pride and Prejudice. Right. And what's great about this is it takes the same line and it just adds the word zombies to it. And it's good. It's a joke. It's, but much like <laughs> Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Slayer, it's an idea that works better in print. I Again, I haven't seen this yeah, I movie, seen but the movie. I everybody the says and it's the, terrible. The book is fine. Yeah. I mean, the book is yeah. fine. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a joke. It's yeah. like there is a, a thing, this Garfield without Garfield, which I encourage everybody to Excellent. read and look at. <laughs> that is but truly worth checking out. It's just out. the guy literally just took Garfield or Garfield strips and just removed Garfield from them. Instead of John, yeah, instead of John Garfield, is basically like, a, a <laughs> depressive, sad sack yes, who probably needs a lot of therapy. Yeah. So there's that. But a lot of people, when they'll talk about the greatest adaptations of all time, a lot of people will point to the, um, yeah, it's Joe Wright. I think it was one of his first movies. Yeah. And Joe Wright. Was it pre-atonement or post-atonement? Yes, it was pre-atonement. Was it? Because yes. Atonement is great. Yes, I would say Atonement's one of my favorite films. Now, I haven't ever. read the novel Atonement, uh, and I might have a different... No, but he... So, he kind of came out of the gate with uh, Pride and Prejudice, I believe it was 2006 or something. It was before we got married, because yes. it was... It was during the period of time when you would do things yeah, I wouldn't for me that, that you wouldn't go do I, now. I mean, I didn't watch Persuasion. So, um, but it's it it got a lot of awards. Love Kara Knightley, I know, was nominated for an Oscar. It still shocks the living hell out of me that uh, what's his name that played what was the main character's name Bennett Darcy Darcy. Sorry, yeah. Uh, I thought you've read this book. I I'm reading and thinking of other stuff too. Mr. Darcy, what's his name? He's on, McFadden, yeah, yeah. he's on Succession now, and they, they look like two different human beings. <laughs> is He's Tom Wamsgans or whatever yes, the guy's yes. name is. So that movie had all this love, have all these things. You're an Austin fan. You, though, to this day, were left cold by that movie. I don't love it um, for a couple of reasons. First, there are things about that movie I love, right? I think Keira Knightley's fine. I thought Rosamund Pike was fine. The person who is great in that movie is Donald Sutherland as Mr. Bennett. Because I think Mr. Bennett is a really interesting character because he starts off as comic relief. And then you realize in the last 20% of the novel that his attitude toward his family is really, really damaging. And I thought Donald Sutherland was was great. There's a couple of little things I don't like about that movie. I think the characterization of Mr. Bingley in that movie is kind of, he's kind of a, drooling idiot in that movie and I, I don't think he comes off that way in the novel at all he's maybe not as forceful as he should be but he's not stupid and he's not insensible going back to the things I do like about that movie I like that in that movie the Bennets while also the landed gentry are clearly poorer than Darcy they make that delineation pretty clearly the Bennets live in a country house and Darcy lives in a in an estate right but the thing that I really don't like about that movie is what I call the brontification of Jane Austen. You know, one of the most pivotal scenes in that movie is when about halfway through the novel, Darcy proposes to Elizabeth in, a, in the most insulting manner possible by basically saying, I want you to marry me, but you're so far beneath me that I struggled for a long time and finally only now asked you to marry me, but I still think you're so far beneath me and it's, it's an insult to my dignity to marry you. I'm paraphrasing. 
this takes place in the novel in Elizabeth's cousin's parsonage house, like in the drawing room. It does not take place on a rainy, windswept moor. And the reason that this bothers me is, A, again, like we're talking about fundamentally misunderstanding Anne Elliot, Mr. Darcy is not going to chase anybody out in the rain to propose and profess his love. It's not who that man is. But this is a very well shot pretty and scene. It was, <laughs> sure. But also there's a scene in Sense and Sensibility where Marianne Dashwood meets Mr. Willoughby on a windswept moor. And the novel is clearly making fun of that as a concept. You know, Marianne does not live happily ever after with Mr. Willoughby. Mr. Willoughby turns out to be a jackass and Marianne is swept off her feet by a cat in that scene. So to me, it's it sort of, it, it was very jarring for it me to see that It turned it into a scene. romance novel. Yeah, and almost into a gothic novel, which again, one of Jane Austen's novel novels, Northanger Abbey, is a satire of gothic novels. Mm -hmm. This was not what she was doing. And so it just strikes me as incredibly strange. And then there is this 16 Candles ending to the whole yeah, thing, I remember which that. also doesn't exactly work for me. So I would say that 80% of that movie is fine. Well, it's – and I think what you're getting from it – now, there's other people I know that – people that really like Austen novels, it is it, – it's, it's not the spirit. Of it. It's not it's, Wuthering Heights. Yeah, it's... These are drawing room satires and social mm -hmm. comedies. Right. It's not... But... I, th I think a lot of people miss the funny part, right? Which maybe is another reason that I didn't care for this Persuasion movie that much, that if you're going to put them in the in the Empire Waste dresses, why are you changing the language so much? Because Jane Austen is funny. She's nothing if not funny. So why are you taking her words out of these characters' mouths? Well, and again, I think a lot of it is people are taking that story and they're they're trying to turn it into a love story. The uh, and, and it is a love story, but it's not Heathcliff and Catherine on the moor. No, no. Now there was I I remember here uh, two thousand five is when that version of Pride and Prejudice came out the year before, and I'm getting all of this from the Mary Sue. They have an article, the best Jane Austen movie adaptations, which a lot of times I read the Mary Sue and I I'm on board with a lot of what they say. They have that as the greatest Jane Austen adaptation of all time. Yeah, no. <laughs> no, so, because you're misunderstanding the novel. Right. There's a few things we're going to be talking about in the second half. But I remember hearing about this movie and a movie called Bride and Prejudice that came out just a year earlier. Yeah, is it Priyanka Chopra in that movie? Uh, no, no. Our Shwari Rai. Yeah. Okay. And um, Naveen Andrews is in that movie, too. I haven't seen that movie. That would, uh, but again, it, it's definitely you read it. You know it. how I feel about Bollywood. Well, right. My point is I have a feeling that, too, kind of like it's a love story. It's a, Now, they're not going to be on some windswept more. They're going to be in a club dancing or, you know, whatever whatever modern Bollywood movies doing. I've not seen RRR. I know people are going to talk about that. But I guess my point about the Pride and Prejudice thing is that this is where people are trying to move to. They're trying to take that story that is well known for being a class struggle or a, a, a class, a, going against the classist systems and completely forgetting that. Well, to, I wouldn't say it's about going against the class. I well, mean, Elizabeth does have a line where she says, he's a gentleman, I'm a gentleman's daughter. Yes. Right? So we're, we're not talking about the poor, mm -hmm. which is maybe what Dickens had an objection to. Because I think Dickens also did not care for her. No. Um, so no. anyway, uh, <laughs> my, no, what, what you're doing is you're 
making something romantic that Jane Austen was not romantic about. She was not romantic about these these marriage proposals. She understood that this was a fundamentally transactional thing to be doing. And marriage is very much treated like a transaction in all of her novels because it is. Because Austen understood that like the Dashwoods and Sense and Sensibility, right? Like the Bennets, Fanny Price and Mansfield. These women are... Again, everything is relative, but they are poor. They do not have money. They do not have resources. They, it is a matter of fundamental security for them to get married to men who are not worthless in both the moral and the fiscal sense of the word. Before we close up and end on some of the good stuff, is there, like, have you seen the 1940 version of Pride and Prejudice? I haven't. Who's in that one? I don't know. I just saw it <laughs> scroll by when I look at all these adaptations. So maybe I should say maybe there was at one time somebody trying to trying to get something. Man, it looks awfully. Oh, Lawrence Olivier as Mr. Darcy. Mm. Who plays Elizabeth? Let's see. Um, it's got all the men listed here. So probably nobody that great. Um, Huxley was the screenwriter. Aldous Huxley? Yeah. Wrote an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice? <laughs> yeah, 1940. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I, I have a feeling it's not considered very good. But is there any other you want to highlight as just missing the mark, or do you want to get to the good stuff? Missing the mark. I mean, most of them, some of them are just kind of boring. Like the, the adaptation of Mansfield Park that was made 10, 15 years ago, it's fine. But Mansfield Park, I don't think, is one of my favorite books anyway. So, And I don't know if there's ever been an adaptation of Northanger Abbey. Maybe. Mansfield Park, is that the one about leaving the cake out in the rain and you'll never have that recipe again? That's, oh, that's MacArthur Park. Yeah, that's, that's Which, the one you yes, can play on the thub law. Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> I was I was just more thinking Donna Summer. But <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I um, yes, people, there is a song called MacArthur Park and it's all about leaving a cake in the rain and yeah, not having it. Ma- Mansfield Park is a different story. <laughs> yes. But yeah, Mansfield Park is a novel I actually don't like that much. And I don't know that there's ever actually been a Northanger Abbey adaptation. I mean, here's the thing. If you want to do that goofy crap and 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 breaking the fourth wall and doing all that stuff, again, Northanger Abbey is a satire of gothic novels. I think that's the one to do it with. Actually, that kind of sounds interesting. Well, that's Somebody where we should make that. Book. Yes, that's well, we'll leave it that we'll come back with the. With the ones that are worth your time, which are a lot more than the ones that are not. True. Hello, all. This is RD. I wanted to talk to you guys about another podcast that I do work on called High Heels in Politics. It's hosted by Marianne Christie, who I work with here in Southwest Ohio. And Marianne, she interviews a lot of influential people. In Ohio, she's interviewed a lot of political people that are influential. But for those of you outside of this state, She's also interviewed people like Susie Chapstick Chaffee, a former Olympic skier who was the face of Chapstick for the 1970s and 1980s. It's really interesting to listen to that one because she talks about her struggles as a woman in the Olympics, but then how she used her celebrity and her attractiveness in order to get more rights for amateur athletes, which led us today to things like the NIL. Also, Susie was very instrumental in Title IX, which we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of. But it's not all just seriousness. Uh, Marianne has also interviewed the Naked Cowboy, the New York City icon that's been out there. Simon Lease, who a lot of you may know if you've ever seen The People vs. Larry Flint, he was the guy that arrested Larry Flint. He also arrested Jerry Springer when Jerry Springer was a member of the Cincinnati City Council here. 
So I encourage you guys go to Spotify, Google, Apple, go search High Heels in Politics, follow, subscribe the show. Marianne comes out with a new one every week, and it's an incredibly great conversation. And if you're interested or know anybody that may be on High Heels in Politics, just go to the contact page and talk to us. So let's get back to the conversation. Okay, Tina, a lot of the, we're talking about Austin and we're talking about a lot of modern films, a lot of things that have come out, and especially recently. Obviously, there's that Netflix persuasion, but Height of the Pandemic, one of the big movies that was supposed to come out, was Emma, which there was, I we didn't talk about it, but there was the, why can't I think of her name? Gwen Paltrow. Paltrow. Yeah, Emma, yeah. which I did see. I have seen that movie. Okay. I I think it came out while I was in college. So now you're up to at least three of these movies. Yeah, no, I forgot about Emma, which (laughs) was a fine enough movie. It's fine, yeah. Jeremy Northam is quite handsome in that movie. It's pre-Goop, Gwyneth, which is... And here's what I will give to Gwyneth over Dakota Johnson. Gwyneth does have that impeccable English accent. Yes, yes. It's perfect. It's much, much better than Dakota Johnson's. But in 2020, uh, Anna Taylor-Joy, who was in The Queen's Gambit of the last Edgar Wright movie she was in, and then she's going to be playing young Furiosa and uh, George Miller's next insanity, you know, thing. <laughs> yeah. But she did an adaptation of Emma, which everyone seems to love. Yeah, everybody does love that movie. Actually, I haven't seen it, but I remember distinctly seeing all of the trailers for it. But let me talk about the version of Emma that I have seen many times, which I think is one of the, if I was thinking about my lifetime, and I'm putting together with Ty and I, We're going to put together like a list of the best movies. We're going to do multiple podcasts for our lifetimes. And this is one that'd be on my list. And that's uh, Amy Heckerling's Clueless. Yeah, it's a great movie. I mean, again, if you're going to do it, do it. Don't have the Regency dresses and the anachronistic Mm -hmm. language, right? Just the story is timeless. Oh, it is. It's a rich girl who likes to meddle in other people's lives. Look, first off, Alicia Silverstone's great in it. R.I.P. Brittany Murphy. Oh, great in it. R.I.P. Brittany Murphy. Yeah. Stacey Dash. R.I.P. Stacey Dash. <laughs> yeah, Even uh, though she's not dead. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> I mean, Don, a young Donald Faison's in this movie. Faison's yeah. in this movie. Yeah. Uh, Paul Rudd is in this movie. Who's the same age? Yes. It's uh, a. <laughs> but you know, there's two. Uh, obviously, Alicia Silverstone's incredibly great in this movie, but it's a. Uh, Two big things I remember. I remember Jeremy Sisto. Yes, that's right. I forgot yeah. he was. A, but um, Roland, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> when um, Paul Rudd, I think, is listening to Radiohead or something, and she calls it as you know whiny white boy music or something like that. I th- yeah, she yeah. called like the emo college rock station because yeah. he's listening to fake plastic trees. Yes, or then when she goes out with the guy who turns out to be gay, but he's she's like, what's this music? Or he said something about Billie Holiday, and she's like, oh, I love him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Clu- Clueless is a, a very, very, very good movie. I'll definitely get that. Before I go back into the Pride and Prejudice. Uh, also, I learned in that movie that everywhere in Los Angeles takes 20 minutes to get yes. back to Sheriff's house. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But before we get into the Pride and Prejudice portion of this, got to talk about, and you're right, I've seen way more of these than I thought I remembered, Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. Emma Thompson won the Oscar for writing for this. Yeah. She didn't win her acting Oscar. No. She won that. Oh, for we talked about this the other day. Yeah. Sense and Sensibility. Ang Lee. Yes. Ang Lee directs and, and this movie. What, what I learned when, because I went back to go look at her Golden Globe speech on YouTube because it's very funny and we'll mm-hmm. get to that in a minute. 
Both of Emma Thompson's Academy Awards were handed to her by Sir Anthony Hopkins. Yeah, which I'm trying to figure out. This is a writing award. So when did Sense and Sensibility came out? 95. Okay, right, right. So, yeah, you're right. That was a great year. Because she got her (laughs) acting award for Howard's End from her co-star, Anthony Hopkins, because he had won for Hannibal Lecter the year before. But yeah, for whatever reason, Kismet or something, he he handed her the second one, too. Well, you have and another story we'll tell here, but you have, obviously, Emma Thompson played the lead in this. And then you had uh, Kate Winslet mm-hmm. was in this movie. Hugh Grant is in this movie. Mm-hmm. Alan Rickman is, is in this movie. Yep. I mean, it's a... And yeah, she wins an Oscar for writing. I believe Ainley was nominated. Mm-hmm. He, I, he's won two directing Oscars. He did not win for this one. I... It kind of put a lot of these people on the map. Alan Rickman had played Hans Gruber, but this was really the beginning. I think of, Emma Thompson was already on the map. I think Hugh Grant was already on Hugh the map. Hugh Grant was. Emma but, Thompson had been nominated for two Academy, three Academy I'm Awards. T- this was a popular movie, though. You know, people saw this movie. Okay. Not but, everybody saw Howard's End. I did. Well, yes, you did. Also saw Remains of the Day. <laughs> I didn't see. I've seen Howard's End. <laughs> I've seen Howard's End since then. I did not see that. I did see but this again, in the movie she theater. She had been nominated for Howard's End, The Remains of the Day, and uh, Supporting Actress for In the Name of the Father before uh, then, which also nobody saw. But I think that she was a, a known quantity. Okay. Well, she's also I'll married be. to Kenneth Branagh. But then why? So of all the movies we talked about, does Sense and Sensibility work so well because she just went straight for it? Or did she find the right path no, to make this movie? No, it's an adaptation. It's absolutely, it's not, there are things that you take liberties with, but you find the right tone and you stay true to who the characters are, right? Again, my objection to persuasion is not that they elided some of the scenes together and combined some characters. It's that Anne Elliot is not that person. And my objection to the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice is that Darcy is not the guy that chases you out in the rain to propose to you. I think she's very true to the characters and it's a character and she's true to the characters and she understands that at the end of the day, a lot of this is about money, right? That the heart wants what it wants, but the heart also needs something to eat. That sounds gross. But anyway, you know what I mean? Also, so we've talked about multiple Emmas. We're going to, again, half of this podcast is going to be about adaptations of Pride and Prejudice. How come there's just this one sense and sensibility? I don't know. Are there are there no others? I mean, there's nothing nobody brings nothing up, nobody talks about. I mean, there's look, there's a lot of adaptations out there, different movies. We're talking about the ones that people have probably heard of. You know what it is? It's so Emma's just a great book. It might actually be of the six, it might actually be just the best novel, right? You know, and Emma's a relatable heroine in that she grows. She starts mm-hmm. off pretty self-involved yeah. and one of the things I like about the Amy Heckerling one is that Paul Rudd is her stepbrother, mm-hmm. which lends it this whole grossness. <laughs> that, But that grossness is there because in the book, Mr. Knightley has known her since she was a little kid. Yeah. So there is already that element of grossness there. But anyway, and we're talking about a world in which cousins frequently think about getting married. Yes. To one yes. So am I understand why there's been so many adaptations of it? And Pride and Prejudice, I think the Elizabeth Darcy story is just... It's compelling and it's got that no, we hate each other. No, we don't thing going on, which I mean, is a is a trope now, right? It is Austin the first person to really do that. Did she invent that trope? I mean, it's a trope for a reason. It works and it's compelling. I think Sense and Sensibility is a, is a tougher sell. Edward Ferris is not the dashing romantic hero 
Darcy wins Elizabeth over ultimately or wins maybe the audience over ultimately when he basically saves her family from ruin and dis- mm-hmm. disrepute, right? So he has that heroic thing to him. Edward Ferris doesn't have that, right? Colonel Brandon, his heroism toward Marianne is quieter. He's not a dashing hero. He's an old guy that loves her and nurses her through some trying times. So I don't think it has that same kind of... I understand why it doesn't have that same kind of resonance. It's a great movie. Yeah. And maybe you just can't match it. I mean, maybe it's just don't try. It's like how they should just stop making Ghostbusters movies. Well, I don't know. I like the Lady <laughs> Ghostbusters movie. Yeah, but that that's a whole nother story for another time. <laughs> right. Don't make another Back to the Future movie, I guess is a better way to put it. Let's talk about Pride and Prejudice. Mm-hmm. But before that, this is the half movie I've seen. I have, ref- I have referenced this movie recently as one of the greatest fights. As a matter of fact, I said it's probably the most realistic fight in all of movie history. Not as pretty yet Colin Firth. Or no, he was pretty then not. Now he's like ruggedly handsome. And then uh, super pretty Hugh Grant. Mm. Now, before I give this over to... This is to, like peak rakish Hugh oh, Grant. Yes, yes. This may be his most perfect role ever. Yeah. But kind of like when Kenneth Branagh played Gilderoy Lockhart. <laughs> yes. There's just certain roles that fit. I was actually thinking about <laughs> Richard E. Grant playing uh, playing Sir Walter Elliott mm-hmm. and thinking that you know Branagh also could have played oh, Sir yeah. Walter Elliott. <laughs> But Bridget Jones's diary. Uh, before I give this over to you, I just want to say, and again, I like the Mary Sue. I, and this article was is recent. It's July of, of 2022, or was it 2021? Nope, 2022. They rank Bridget Jones as the worst adaptation ever. I don't know that Bridget Jones is actually an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. Well, it's an adaptation of an adaptation. I don't think the novel is actually okay. an adaptation. I, I, I would say that Sittenfeld's novel tracks very closely. Curtis Sittenfeld's novel, Eligible, tracks very closely to Pride and Prejudice. You wouldn't count Bridget Jones Bridget as Jones a- has elements of Pride and Prejudice in it, right? But it's not... There are some similar story beats in her relationship with Daniel. Daniel is clearly the Mr. Wickham and Mark Darcy, who is the Mr. Darcy, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's pretty on the nose what Helen Fielding has done there. But I don't think the story, the beats in the rest of the story are quite the same. So I don't know if you necessarily call it. It's a wink and a nod to Pride and Prejudice, but not necessarily. Because Bridget is a hot mess mm-hmm. in a way that Elizabeth Bennet is not. And it doesn't bother me <laughs> because I don't see the story beats mapped quite so clearly. Is it a movie you still think fondly of? Yeah, I like the, I like that book. I okay. mean, I know it's not fashionable for me to say it. But I read that book on a plane. I picked it up in a in in an airport bookstore back when that was a thing that people mm-hmm. did. You know, I like the book. I again, Zellweger, I think's pretty good in that movie. One of the funny things about that book is that in the book, Bridget is obsessed with the scene in the BBC Pride and Prejudice where Colin first jumps into the lake. So I thought it was an inspired and very funny bit of casting that they did actually get Colin Firth to play Mark Darcy. Like I said, some of the story beats are there, but it doesn't map as cleanly. So I don't know that I necessarily consider it to be an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice in the same way that something like like Eligible is. Uh, the Mary Sue, they don't think it ages well because of the fat shaming. Okay, well, that's sure. There's a lot of things that don't age well. Let's get to the elephant in the room. 
you know, everything we've talked about is a movie. And I mean, I guess everything's a movie at the end. I mean, the, the novel, one of my favorite parts of the novel, Bridget Jones's Diary, is that it's written as a diary in every entry starts with how much she weighs and how many cigarettes she's had and how many drinks she's mm-hmm. had. So, I mean, I don't know that you can get that you can make Bridget Jones's diary without some nod to Bridget's obsession with her weight. No. And so, a, yeah. You know. So the, the elephant in the room, the, you know, not a lot of people don't consider this one of the greatest Austin adaptations ever. They consider it one of the greatest miniseries ever made. And that was the BBC, again, 1995, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, 1995 was really the year because I think <laughs> Clueless came out that year yes, also. <laughs> yes. So here's, here's my question. I have not seen this. I know the scene that Bridget's talking about. I know see, even this thing I'm reading here, it says, highlight, the series made everyone swoon when Darcy emerged from a pond. <laughs> here's my question. That's not in the book. By the way. Yeah, but why why do you have a little bit of a hesitation? And I know why, but I just want to hear with the Joe Wright version, whereas this is just pure, you know, lady porn. I mean, there's here. a there there are there are a couple of reasons, right? First of all, this movie is you know, if you take out all the commercials, it's four and a half hours long. Mm-hmm. Pride and Prejudice is not a very long book. So four and a half hours, you are basically doing the story in its entirety with every nuance and subplot contained therein. So there's that, which which helps, right? If you're looking for something that is good. This is the most enormously faithful adaptation of a novel I have read that I've ever seen. Speaking of Howard's End might be right up there, but, mm-hmm. <laughs> but that's for a different day. But no, it's it's a really, really really faithful adaptation of the novel characterization is very true jennifer ely is great as elizabeth also fine british accent i thought she was british she's she's not i found that out later and colin firth is exactly the right casting for mr darcy because colin firth is not a heartthrob right He's tall, he's handsome, but you believe that he's a stuck-up rich guy without being rakish like Hugh Grant. He doesn't have that rakishness to him. He has this stolid, very reserved, stick-up-his-butt Englishman thing going on, right? So part of it is just really, really, really good casting. Julia Sawala is Lydia. Now, Julia Sawala was... For that was Saffron on uh, Absolutely yeah, yeah, Fabulous, absolutely. That's right, yeah. who is the very straight-laced, I can't remember whether she's Adina's daughter or Patsy's daughter, but she's she's very straight-laced yes. on that show. Yeah. And so then to see her just going completely effing nuts as Lydia Bennett was kind of entertaining as well. So, you know, there, there's that. It's just an incredibly faithful adaptation of the novel. There is the Firth in the Pond scene, right? Which part of why people like that so much is that this is a character who is so buttoned up and he does this when he is back at his family home, at his boyhood home. And it's this idea that this is the place where he is. He's a, he's a, he's an awkward dude. I mean, he is a socially awkward guy that comes through in the novel. The fact that he's stripping down as much as a Regency era gentleman might and hopping into a pond to go swimming it feels out of character for him to do anywhere else, but it shows you how at home he is when he gets back to Pemberley, right? So 
I think that works. I think David Bamber as Mr. Collins is terrific. Now, I is it, am I thinking the same guy? Was he on Red Dwarf? I don't know. Okay, he was Cicero in HBO's Rome, which always. Um, okay, I think I'm thinking the wrong guy. All right, yeah, ahead. but but he's he's great as Mr. Collins. He's that perfect mixture of obsequious and smarmy and generally a jackass that you get rolled up in Mr. Collins. The only person I would recast is is Wickham. That's where maybe a Hugh Grant would have been awesome to put, <laughs> but he's probably too too famous at that point. Well, here's here's my theory about that because so first off, why do we get two meteors are going to hit the Earth movie in the same year? Why do you get Armageddon and Deep Impact in the same year? Or right. you know, there's other things like Contagion that. and yeah. what was it? So a lot of it is you have these things are already somebody wrote a script and somebody's going to go produce it. And then that producer loses the rights to it. It goes somewhere else, but they still want to do it. So that's why a lot of times you'll get those. I think 1995 or 1994, I think a lot of people saw that there were some of these Austin things in production. And Clueless was a big hit. Sense and Sensibility was a big hit and an Oscar winner. And then you had the BBC Pride and Prejudice miniseries. I think more than anything, that miniseries is what really launched this Austin renaissance because Sense and Sensibility was going to get paid. You know, something like Clueless, these are things that have been in the works for a while. Obviously, this BBC thing is too, but you look from 1995 on, that's where all these adaptations are. Like I said, there's that 1940s one, but you had Bridget Jones. When did the Paltrow Emma come out? Was that late 90s? I think it was 96. Oh, so that was already in the works by then, too, though. So yeah. why why did Jane Austen have a moment in the mid-90s? What's that about? That's, I don't know. But, I mean, that's, I think that's kind of like, well, I do know. That's what I said is you had is it related somebody, to- some like, this is what I think happened. I could be all wet, but somebody wanted to make Pride and Prejudice the movie. And they were like, no, I got to do this. I got to do this. And studios probably bought it. Warner Brothers probably said, yeah, okay. Sony said, yeah, okay, we'll look at it. Excuse me, Columbia, whoever. And they're like, too long, too long. And BBC said, we're going to make it. But all these studios had seen this. So they're like, oh, this Jane Austen wrote some interesting novels. We should look into this. And so you had this moment where it all happened. And ever since then, I think there's been at least an Austin movie every year. I mean, I wonder, bear with me for a Mm -hmm. moment, but this was also around the time in our cultural zeitgeist where there was this new feminism wave, right? What was it? The third wave at that point. And again, (laughs) Jane Austen always understood the transactional nature of marriage for these women. Right. That they could not afford to find some cute, stable hand and run off with him. That is not what any of these women ever did. Right. So the the person in those books that gets that is closest to marrying somebody poor is Lydia Bennett, who marries Mr. Wickham, but gets basically bailed out by Darcy at, at the end of the, the book. Right. Mm-hmm. So she... Austin understood the transactional nature of marriage. And I think because of that, there is a proto-feminism to this whole thing, right? That these women were not 
I'm just going to marry anybody who's rich. They wanted to marry somebody who they respected on an intellectual level and who respected them on an intellectual level. And I think that comes through in these books, that it's not about passion. It's about respect. I don't know if that has. No, no. I'm trying to think about what else was going on in the mid-90s that would have made this particular thing kind of compelling. Well, whatever it was, you had those three movies that I think are miniseries in the two movies that I think everybody will agree are our peak. You know, they're they're the best adaptations of those particular Which stories. Three? Clueless, Sense and Sensibility, and Pride and Prejudice. Sure. Since then I, say I have not I think the Paltrow Emma is fine. Yeah. I think the It's Joe, not clueless. I, no. I think <laughs> the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice is mostly okay. And I haven't seen the but, Anya Taylor. Joy. I mean the thing is, since that year though, you have had all these adaptations. And let's give the Joe Wright Pride and Prejudice. Let's put it in the good category. Yeah, Let's I, there's put, a TV uh, movie made with um, with Karen Hines as Frederick Wentworth, a TV movie of Persuasion. That one was mm-hmm. that was pretty good too. And you know, let's the Anna Taylor Joy Emma is considered really good I think too. It's Anya Taylor Joy. Oh, is it? All right, well, that's my bad. But <laughs> you you haven't been able to recapture that magic because what they're doing now is they're taking these classic stories and completely changing and not changing no, the no, characters no, no. Away. Think... because from everything I've heard from everybody, the problem with persuasion is the lead character. It's not Dakota Johnson's acting. It's the writing. It's, it's the, the characterization the of the character is not the same mm-hmm. character. It's a fundamental, again, just like Mr. Darcy does not chase anybody onto a windswept moor to profess his love. Yeah, Anne Elliot is not a blithering idiot who is tripping over her own feet and dumping a gravy boat on top of herself. That is not who she is. Is this like a Inspector Clouseau type movie or something like that? There, there is a strong element of slapstick, especially in the first half of the movie. But I guess my final question or thought here is... This woman is dignified. She is sad. Right? She is competent and she is dignified. Okay. I guess what I'm saying though is in this time period we're talking about, 1995 on, you've got some good adaptations, you have bad adaptations. That's just the, the nature of the beast. But do you think Austin is pretty well represented in our movie slash television pop culture? Yeah, I think so. I think we so. We just need to get away from the latest one. Again, I think I preface this by saying I don't hate this movie as much as some other right. people do because I think some I understand. Really hate it. I know, and I, I think I understand what they were going for. I just think it was some of it was unnecessary and some of it was really poorly executed. Again, if you're gonna do the Empire Waste dresses, you leave Austin's words in the characters' mouths because she's a better writer than whoever you are. Is what I'm gonna say. Right. So going back to if anybody that hasn't seen it should go and YouTube Emma Thompson's Golden Globe speech when she won her Golden Globe for writing Sense and Sensibility, because she did it Austin style. She basically tried to imagine what Austin would write about a ridiculous awards ceremony like that. First of all, it shows you how well she understands the language and how well she understands that biting tone that Austin has. Right. 
So leave it alone. Leave her words in her character's mouths. Austin Collins of Rolling Stone said, Austin works hard, but mediocrity, this movie reminds us, works harder. <laughs> so he's basically saying the same thing. Yes, yes, exactly. So, so there's, a, there's a part in this movie where Anne, in her voiceover, talks about her and Frederick Wentworth being worse than, worse than exes, now they're friends or something like that. That line in Austin's words is something like they couldn't be acquaintances because they had already been acquainted and now they're something more like permanent estrangement. That's better is what I'm saying. Well, if people need to contact you to do to to look over their Austin adaptations, where are they going to find you? They can find me at <laughs> Tina Seedsing on the Twitter machine. Well, thank you for coming in again. And it's, uh, I think Ty might be back next week. I'll have to see how I feel about it. But uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see about that. You're not going to ask about his trip to lovely Pooh Island? Uh, I probably will. But you and I went up there, what, 12 years yeah, ago now? Yeah. 13? Yeah. So we'll, we will we will see about that. But uh, again, a couple of other things. It's uh, between where we're getting towards the end. Make sure you guys get out and vote. The election's really important, all that other good stuff. But I'm going to cut it off there and use uh, brevity. as uh, did, Oh, I meant to say, didn't Emma Thompson also tell Kate Winslet if she ever won an Oscar? She, or, and she cried. She was going to slap her if Winslet ever won the Oscar. If Winslet won the Oscar and cried <laughs> while accepting yeah. it, yeah. And she did. Yeah. But. And also, um, so so Emma Thompson wrote a memoir of filming that movie. And that's in there. And also her asking Ang Lee what his wife did and him dismissively waving his hand and saying science. Yeah. Isn't she like a professor at University I, of Illinois or something? She does science, which is the extent of what, she, what Ang yeah. Lee is going to tell you. Ang Lee kicks ass. That's all I got to yes, say. He does. Um, so with all that being said, we thank you for your years. Anything else that you may use to listen to the Ex-Millennial Man podcast. Remember, we are here every Saturday for free wherever you find your fine podcasting shows. And that's it. I'm going to go see the beautiful people at the water park with your son. Have fun. All right. Bye. Bye. The Ex-Millennial Man Podcast is a production of SeedSing.com, fully owned by R.D. Kulik & Associates, LLC. Producers Ty Kulik and Ryan Kulik, adequately engineered by Ryan Kulik.